The following program deals with mature subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Scano Sego Ani Bojo Kwekwe Tansi and welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, and also you could be listening on the Radio Player Canada app. If you download the app and type in uh, 106.5 ELMNTFM or 95.7 ELMNTFM, you could be listening on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And uh, if someone is outside of our listening area, the immediate listening area, you could tell them about that. Uh, they could be listening uh, anywhere, as I say, across the country. And you can also catch some of our previously uh, recorded interviews. We put them up on our uh, on our. Uh, 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 SoundCloud, as well as our website. So, uh, please, uh, if you feel you've missed something or you know someone that might have missed something, you want to uh, direct them to that, uh, f- please feel free to do so. I'd like to welcome uh, my first guest to the show today. And uh, unfortunately, she's a little under the weather, but it's a pleasure <laughs> to have her here. Robin Doolittle is in the studio. Uh, Robin Doolittle is an investigative reporter with the Globe and Mail. She joined that team in 2014, but prior to that, she was with. Uh, the Toronto uh, Star, uh, for about 10 years, and uh, you may have heard from her uh, in other ways. She, uh, of course, has another book that she uh, she put out called Crazy Town, uh, the Rob Ford story, uh, and also uh, she uh, did some, some really uh, great work uh, uh, for the Globe uh, uh, Unfounded. And that leads into part of what we're going to talk, I guess, a little bit about today mm-hmm. here on the show, which is, uh, which is the new book that she has out entitled Had It Coming, What is Fair in the Age of Me Too? Now, it is also a shortlisted book. Congratulations to Robin on that, by the way, for the RBC Taylor shortlisted uh, 2020 awards coming up uh, in March of this year, I believe. It is. We have a little, uh, about a month to go. And, you know, uh, before we get any further, Robin, I just want to say that, that you know, this is a, a delicate topic that we could be addressing today. So I want to let everyone know that uh, if that if you you might be triggered by something, please be aware that this uh, this is uh, a delicate topic we're, we're going to address having to do with uh, uh, sexual content, uh, misbehavior, uh, those kind of things. So please... Uh, be aware and uh, and and uh, and uh, you know do what is appropriate for yourself in that regard. Um, now I want to go back a little bit though before we get into this because uh, I was reading about Robin and she was raised in Sarnia, and um, now that's not you know, necessarily <laughs> Sarnia was the big city. I was raised in a little tiny town called Forest. Yeah, yeah. you know what? I can't remember where Forest is exactly. Forest is sort of between Sarnia, Grand Bend. Um, it's very close to Ipperwash, mm. uh, Wash Beach. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm actually out by Ipperwash. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the, the way I explain it to people is it has two stoplights, and we got our first Tim Hortons in my last year of high school. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations! Thank you. Yeah, it put the local business, uh, the local donut shop, out of business, but. <laughs> mm. Besides that, I still drink a lot of Tim Hortons. I'm kind of on a tangent now, but oh, yeah. that's why I'm drinking my neocitrin. So let's keep going. <laughs> okay, let's keep going. Um, now, you know, the thing that, that I found interesting about that, and you mentioned Dipper Wash. Uh, so two things come to mind. One is, uh, I guess your your first sort of uh, inkling into wanting to get into journalism had to do with, with something at your high school. You were dating someone that was of First Nation ancestry. Yeah, yeah, my um, 
my boyfriend all through high school was uh, an indigenous guy. I didn't, I mean, it, I didn't think about it at the time. I, mm. uh, as maybe most teenagers, maybe not so much today, but I was very kind of caught up in the dramas of my own little world and didn't think a ton about this sort of thing. Um, a racial element to our relationship or whatnot, but at our um, at our high school prom, uh, my whole bus, which was all white kids except him, um, was had pulled up uh, to the prom, and everyone was walking in. And um, I mean, pretty well everyone on the bus, I think, had had been drinking a bit before. He actually hadn't been um, because I was the president of student council and was know afraid of hmm. I don't know setting a bad example I don't know blah 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 but um and the the cops stopped him of of the entire busload of of kids who were obnoxiously drunk and mm. as, as was most of the senior class mm. and uh wouldn't let him in and I just remember screaming at the police officer to give him a give him a breathalyzer test then mm. like I don't he's not been drinking at all and anyway I threw a bit of a fit mm. um and uh anyway ended up getting <laughs> suspended and mm. it was just it was a my first real uh v- understanding of of the powerlessness and um mm. just outright discrimination i guess that i kind of saw with my own eyes and mm. uh it was so much of this book is about reconciling um uncomfortable truths about ourselves and views that we hold that are uh, problematic and also understanding privilege. Mm. And I can say that even though that that happened when I was 17, Mm -hmm. I didn't really start to understand the privilege that I have as a white woman well into my 20s. And I think it's relevant because I think so much of Me Too is about asking men to look at their privilege. And um, there's, I think... uh, understandably understandably a, a feeling of defensiveness that people can have when you start talking about some of these issues you're like well i'm not a predator so mm. and i liken it and i am like i know where they're coming from because i feel that as a white person sometimes and mm. and just having to understand that um you got to push through that it's it's easy to feel um defensive and just shut down but you got to push through that being uncomfortable yeah, I appreciate you sharing that. The other thing I wanted to ask you is you brought up the, the, the First Nations. Uh, we were talking about that a little bit. Doolittle. <laughs> Has anyone ever asked you about your name, Doolittle? Because that's a familiar name for me from Six Nations. Uh, we do. So there's, um, I'm not very aware, to be honest, of many Doolittles that I am mm. related to because of uh, some stuff with my dad's family where I don't know mm. many of them. But yes, there are, um, there is a, uh, a family lineage of, of Doolittles in, in First Nations communities. There's um, a large contingent of Doolittles in the U.S. who are um, black. We're uh, up in kind of the Sarnia area. Um, people ask me usually in the context of, do I talk to animals? That's usually the question I get with related to Doolittle. <laughs> oh, and do you? <laughs> I wish I could, you know, mm, yeah. yeah. <laughs> So is there is there some connection there though with I honestly have you know, no idea okay. on the Doolittle side of my family. Sure. If you're related to a if yeah. you're related, I'd love to meet you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. Uh, so yeah, so now coming back to um, the the uh, Had It Coming book, uh, what's fair in the age of Me Too? And I appreciate you you uh, you know sort of starting with that 
point of being uncomfortable mm -hmm. that, and that privilege because uh, that does come up time and time again, even maybe even not directly, but indirectly. And that, that feeling of uncomfortableness, uh, you know, I, I felt very uncomfortable reading this. Mm -hmm. um, but what I really, really enjoyed about the book uh, was how you, you know, you, you mentioned this sort of right off the top about you thought you, you had your mind made up on this topic. Yeah. And, and then it hit you and, and you, you had to probe deeper and that's when things started to change for you. Even the title itself had it coming. Mm -hmm. You know, I've asked, I asked our, our, our producer, what do you think that means? And, you know, he came back with what I thought would, would have been the appropriate answer. But in fact, the line I saw in the book was actually not coming from a man. It was coming from a woman that mm -hmm. said that. And mm -hmm. I went, ah, that's an interesting little little twist in there. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, the book, oh, geez. So, the t I mean, on the title, Had It Coming, I think throughout the book, I really make the argument that this is, this moment we've been having has been a long time coming. Mm. Um so had it coming is, you know, one of the old tropes that she had it coming yep. because she was, you know, she's mm -hmm. not yep. virginal or virtuous. She was drinking. She was dressed provocatively. She was flirting. Uh, in the context in the book then that it's used, we were talking about the Aziz Ansari story where the comedian had been accused of sexual misconduct by a date of his who acknowledges that she never said no, but she was giving nonverbal cues, uh, which sparked a ton of debate. Uh, and my, um, I have a conversation with some friends uh, talking this out because I'm not really sure where to place this in the spectrum of Me Too. And my one of my very smart girlfriends said to me, like, if he didn't want to end up um, uh, being embarrassed over this, he should have been more respectful to his date. He had it coming. Mm. And uh, so kind of flipping it a little bit. But really, it's about this conversation we've all had coming mm -hmm. for a long time. So mm -hmm. you do start the book with, with the story about uh, the incident with Kobe Bryant. Mm hmm and that sort of launches you into this but but i guess before that y you know even when you were you were doing research into this uh unfounded is is kind of like where you i kind of started with this and that mm -hmm. was before the me too correct yeah so um i'm an investigative journalist at the globe and in 2015 was trying to figure out what my next story was going to be and uh, at the time i noticed everyone was just completely obsessed with the Gian Gomeshi trial mm -hmm. and the feeling among a lot of the women that I know, women that I didn't know, people that I was reading was that uh, the justice system is rigged against sexual assault complainants. And I uh, thought, well, that's a really interesting area to look at. I wonder if the system really is rigged against sexual assault complainants. Is there a way to actually quantify that? And that's where I came to this unfounded investigation where essentially I was collecting statistics from uh, more than 870 police jurisdictions to look at cases that had been dismissed um, as either false or baseless, which means unfounded. Someone says, I was raped. There's a police investigation. No, no, you weren't raped definitively. These are not cases where we couldn't find a person, where there wasn't enough evidence, where the complainant backed out. This is, you were not raped. And in collecting these statistics, I found that uh, more than 19% of complaints were being dismissed in this way. And that's uh, the average. So that's, in some cities, it was as high as 51%. Um, 120 communities in Canada had unfounded rates that were more than one in three cases were being dismissed. I should also mention, we can't break out of the statistics um, any underlying or uh, you know, kind of overlaying factors such as race or religion, 
um, sexual orientation, uh, police don't keep those statistics. So you can imagine uh, what that looks like in different communities as well. So this is a huge problem. Why would this be happening? It's, it was more than twice the rate of physical assault cases being dismissed in this way and dramatically higher than other crimes. The only explanation that I found after interviewing many, many dozens and dozens and dozens of very smart people and going through court transcripts and investigating 54 specific cases is that because police are people, they carry around a lot of the same biases that the rest of us do around rape, myths and stereotypes. Um, this is rape culture. And rape culture, one of those phrases that I think can make people feel very defensive and shut down the conversation, but we got to push through it. Rape culture is the system that we all live in where we um, are more likely to blame victims and make excuses for perpetrators, um, people who are committing harm, and where we normalize behavior, um, uh, sexual violence, sexual harassment. Uh, it's just so woven into our society, it's hard to even see. And so through a lot of the book, I'm asking us to notice rape culture and understand where it comes from and how do we push through it. And and that was what I really liked about uh, going back to what I was saying about the book is that you, you do challenge all sides of this. And and I was surprised uh, to to the lengths. Uh, you know, I thought we were coming to the end of the book and then you opened up a different chapter on thinking of of uh, of a different, uh, for instance, youth, you know, to the end mm-hmm. of the book, right? And and how you were thinking, am I really still youthful enough to have that perspective? And then you went out and spoke with some some real youth, right? The yeah, 519. I was really, I've been really fascinated from my unfounded reporting, but right through to the book, um, hearing from women of a certain vintage, so I'll say my mother's age and older, um, who, you know, come up in a very complimentary of the series, but saying, you know, Uh, So many of the cases that I looked at in my Unfounded series involved women who were really, really intoxicated at the Mm -hmm. time of of, uh, the incident. And they're saying, you know, why are we not talking about why women are getting so obliterated at parties? Like they're putting themselves at risk. And do we need to not talk about that? Mm -hmm. And in my generation, uh, I'm 35, so I'm you know, maybe still young, maybe not that young. I can't have no perspective (laughs) anymore. Um, That's kind of falls into the victim blame, victim blaming bucket. You know, you can't put the onus on women because then you're blaming the victim. That's rape culture. Um, but I'm hearing, so I've, I've kind of always thought that. And then I uh, spent this this day with this really um, trailblazing, awesome 80-year-old former radical feminist <laughs> named Susan Brown Miller, who wrote the first big book on sexual assault and rape called Against Our Will. And she lived in New York. And just talked through her views. Like, why is that your, why is that the, 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 the claim you're making when you're a feminist? And she's basically saying, you know, I wrote against our will because I didn't want women to be raped anymore. And so why is it controversial to say, ladies, don't get completely intoxicated and obliterated at parties because you're putting yourself at risk. Why is that controversial? And I don't disagree with her uh, on the, the fact that There is a safety element. I have two little girls. And of course, I'm going to have that conversation with them when they go to high school. Mm -hmm. So I was really interested in exploring the generational divides. And in having that conversation with her, I realized, oh, my gosh, I mean, there's a whole generation younger than me. Um, I wonder, maybe maybe I'm out of date. At what point, some point in Susan Brammler's life, in the 70s, she was a radical feminist. And now she's dismissed as a victim blamer. When am I going to cross that threshold and understanding what younger generations are talking about? And um, for example, younger generations are really link feminism and this conversation with having an intersectional approach. It's it's not controversial to talk about 
it cannot just be, you know, white female feminism, um, really making sure that we're we're not just looking at the problems we're facing through a gendered lens. You have to overlay racial elements, economic elements, sexual orientation elements, um, where you fit on the gender spectrum. And uh, that if you don't have that full picture, you're going to lose people. And that's a very, you know, that can make people really defensive of um, because it's different, I guess. And, and just really exploring those different views and why people have them and how we can all kind of come to some common ground and having a conversation and that we're all more evolved and have a better understanding of these issues. Okay, I just want to jump in and let everyone know you're listening to uh, Element FM. This is Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses, and my guest is Robin Doolittle. And uh, we're talking about uh, her book, Had It Coming, uh, The uh, What's Fair in the Age of Me Too, hashtag Me Too. And, um, you know, the other thing that I've that, uh, failed to mention off the top is that you've also been chosen uh, to uh, judge uh, the 2020 mm. uh, CBC Nonfiction Prize coming yeah. up as well. So congratulations on that. Thanks. It was a fun perk of uh, probably not... It's it's probably related to being <laughs> shortlisted for the Taylor, so mm-hmm. that's a fun perk of that. Um, now, uh, going back to what you were just talking about, you know, you've raised now about the generational thing. You mm-hmm. you talked about the police because this is what I what I was saying about the book that I that I liked is that you you, you approach this from all different angles. So mm-hmm. you looked you spoke to police, you spoke with the, you looked at the judicial system, you ended up speaking with a judge. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you you talked to you you looked at some of these experts and and you you delved into trying to get into the psyche of what was going on with people that are uh, that are uh, uh, abused mm-hmm. and and why people react a certain way. You delved into all of that, which I found really interesting as well because it helps to flesh out some of those stereotypes and some of those things that we uh, ask ourselves about why didn't a person do something or how why did they react this way. Um, uh, so I think that that, uh, that really, really helps give you uh, a sense, and it does it challenge you to think about how are you perceiving all of this. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so uh, I, really, I, really, uh, I really like that you, you, you do make people look at all this in, in this way. Now the book is out. Now you've had a chance to think about it. What are your perceptions of this looking back on it? Um... Well, it's interesting you ask. In the book, I spend uh, quite a bit of time talking about the case with Aziz Ansari. Um, And I I come back to it a couple of times. I look at it to explore consent, which I think is so central to this entire movement, our understanding of consent, how we talk about consent, how we're obsessed with viewing consent through a legal lens rather than ethical and a moral one. I come back to the case when I think about the redemption question and um, is, is... what do we do with people who have committed harm? Are they banished to rape Island forever? Or do we give people an opportunity to atone, to, um, to make amends, to come back? What does coming back look like? Mm-hmm. Um, I look at the case to talk about cancel culture and how we are, it, it's really difficult to have these kind of messy, complex, uh, complicated conversations in public now because we're afraid of being shouted down for saying the wrong thing, um, you know, not appearing woke in the right way or appealing to our own um, like-minded groups. So I come back to it um, throughout, but the Aziz story, when I first bring it up, I'm, I'm mentioning it in the context of I, I, when I read that story, I texted a bunch of my girlfriends and said, Oh my God, 
is this a me too story? Like mm-hmm. I didn't, un- this woman, um, I mean, as a piece of journalism, it was, it's, it's called, uh, it's very problematic, but forgetting that point, it was babe.net. I went on a date with Aziz Ansari. It was the worst night of my life. And, um, I just wasn't, she, the, the woman said that she felt she'd been sexually assaulted. And when I read it, it just didn't seem fair to me that he was being stamped in that way. When she acknowledges that she, um, he, you know, kind of ask, will you do this? And she would do it mm. and then, but didn't want to do it. Mm. Um, and she, you know, he was asking, he wasn't, um, they weren't drunk. He, she wasn't afraid. And I just didn't know, she didn't say anything. And I'm like, I don't know what to think of this. And I felt sorry for him that he was being kind of lumped in as a me too offender. And my friends really kind of were like, no, this is the kind of behavior that we need to talk about where, you know, these situations that so many women can relate to of, of like, why are we going along with this? Or where, why are we being conditioned to be in these situations? Um, and uh, at the time I wrote the book, I was still kind of of the mindset that, well, I don't really think that is, um, I still have a lot of complicated feelings about it. But now on the other side of the book, since it's been published, Aziz is doing fine. Mm. Like he's completely, um, I, I think it restored my my faith in some ways that we can have that full conversation around me to, he, you know, he disappeared for a year, but he's, I think, been completely, for the most part, welcomed back he gave, I think, what was um, a sincere uh, apology and breakdown of what happened on his kind of rehabilitation comedy tour, which I did go and see. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I, now I think that was a really positive thing that story ran um, because it did have us explore that that gray area, which is really what Me Too is about, is exploring those gray area scenarios. Yes, I, I agree. The gray area, and and it looms large uh, throughout this whole discussion, um, and and leaves us all, uh, as as I say, questioning ourselves. But but you know, you also went and spoke with uh, Gray. It was Gray, the judge, that I believe you spoke to as well, right? And asked him how he was feeling after all this had happened. Yeah, Robin Camp. Yeah. The um, so Robin Camp. This is the judge that uh, very infamously asked um, a woman why she didn't just keep her knees shut if she didn't want to be penetrated. And it was a comment that I think struck so many people in the country as just totally abhorrent. And he became this personification of, of, of rape culture on the bench. And he was put on a very public disciplinary hearing. And during that, uh, that hearing, he uh, underwent voluntary um, training, sensitivity training. He, you know, he had a crash course in feminist legal law. He learned about trauma and the ways that, our brain and bodies physically change in periods of intense fear that can create a um, uh, that that can basically make us act in seemingly illogical ways. Like why why don't you yell out? Why don't you call for help? Why don't you run away? And um, if you're intensely afraid, it's there's a biological answer for that. So it's understanding trauma. And I spoke to him. So he, the, the hearing ultimately recommended his removal and he quit before he was pushed out. Um, but I wanted to speak with him about this question of redemption and second chances and whether he thought he deserved one or whether he thought he had been unfairly maligned. And most importantly, I wanted to know whether he'd actually changed his mind about some of these views that he had. And if he did, how did he do that? Because people don't change their mind anymore. And it was one of my 
um, a conversation that'll stick with me the rest of my life. Just understanding, and I, I do believe that he's that he's a more evolved person now by far. And you know, how does a sixty-year-old white guy from South Africa who's mm. been a judge change his mind? And for him, it was all about conversations. The experts he was talking to, one of his mentors was a female judge. Um, would give him scenarios and ask him to talk it through. And he, you know, he said they didn't yell at me. No one gave me the answers. They just, okay, well, why do you think that? Well, why do you think that? Mm. Well, why would you assume that? Mm. And it was through those conversations that he realized, well, actually, my views don't make sense. Her behavior makes sense. My views don't make sense. Mm, interesting. Um, you know, and and we get that perspective uh, throughout. Um, and 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 you know, I, I'm. We could go, we could delve so deeply into any one section of this, and we're trying to give people a broad sense of what the book is about. So let's come back to the, the start of the book. It's one of the, one of the stories that, uh, that you used as, as, in a way to get into this, this topic. And it, it's uh, unfortunate that, that this, uh, the man has just recently been mm. killed in a, you know, in, in, a, in a helicopter accident with his daughter. Uh, Kobe Bryant, you, you, you raised that story in the book as well. Yeah, that's how I start the book. And I mean, it's taken on a whole new element now with just the total tragic Mm -hmm. accident that happened. Um, I ask, I spend a lot of the book um, asking people to think about rape culture and their own biases. And so I thought the only fair spot to start would be talking about my own. my own backwards feelings. And so I tell the story of the Kobe Bryant accusation um, through kind of my eyes as an 18 year old. And I remember hearing about that. I would have been in high school, so I would have just left uh, Little Forest, Ontario. And I remember when I heard about the case, my thought was, well, why did a 19 year old go to, or like, why did this woman go to a hotel room with an NBA player at night? Like, what did she think was going to happen? And why was that my reaction? Um, I talk about the police investigation. I talk about how the media treated the case, which was very sympathetic. I talk about the fact that the courts um, were uh, very disrespectful of this woman's privacy. They emailed all like the journalists covering the trial with uh, confidential information about the woman's sexual history that they shouldn't have done. Um, that's what rape culture is. And since... Uh, the horrible accident. I've had a lot of people asking, you know, interview requests about this. Well, what do we think about Kobe Bryant? Um, basically, I think asking, you know, is it okay to mourn him? And they're sort of missing because because I've had this book, chapter in my book about it, and they're sort of missing the point. My my chapter about Kobe Bryant is not. I want you to hate Kobe Bryant. It's looking at what a, a rape accusation, how the public deals with it, how society deals with it. Um, but the questions that they're raising address other parts of the book around, you know, people are not defined by one thing that they do. And um, he can be a legendary basketball star, by all accounts, a wonderful father. He can be um, important to so many people for legitimate reasons and have this um, have also been the subject of a very credible sexual assault allegation. Um I think the other thing is that the context and the time in which this happened, 2003, uh, it was a different time. And there wasn't this. I would be curious to see how it happened now if there could have been. If, it, we've never heard from Kobe Bryant about what he ultimately took away from that experience. Um, he did issue an apology at the time of sorts. Uh, 
but I think it was more indicative of the time rather than what you would see today if someone maybe um, having more of a, a reflection on what happened. I We won't know what Kobe ever thought. I think that's the thing that I think people wanted was this was a long time ago. Um, he was a young 20-something basketball star. I think when you think of someone who at 17 is drafted into the NBA, immensely wealthy, um, powerful, famous, how that distorts your sense of entitlement. That's what Me Too is about, is understanding power. Um, I would have loved to have seen sometime a sit-down interview with Kobe talking about that experience. Um, that probably wasn't going to happen anyway for a variety of reasons. But uh, no, it's okay to mourn Kobe Bryant. It's immensely sad. Um, and it's also okay to remember what happened and help it shape our understanding and views around how society deals with these very complicated issues. Mm. Uh, thank you for that. Appreciate you sharing that with us. Um, we're, we're almost out of time. And uh, I wanted to, as I was reading through this, uh, near the end of the book, uh, there's a section that, that kind of helped, uh, uh, helped me in terms of how do, we, how do we end this discussion sort of thing. And uh, if you don't mind, I'm just going to read a little bit of it, if that's okay. Go for it. <laughs> <laughs> the extraordinary culture transforming playing out today has meant that social norms around sex and power have shifted workplace impropriety that would have been merely frowned upon a decade ago can now qualify as a uh, fireable offense. Misbehavior that would have once been brushed off as just a bad date is no longer being dismissed as insignificant. And the criminal justice system is under unprecedented pressure to get it right when it comes to sexual violence. But within these new term uh, truths lie miles of uncertainty, uncertainty. When does an action cross the line? What should happen to those who have committed harm? What exactly should the courts be doing differently? How do we reconcile a victim's right to call out the abuser with an accused person's right to self-defense and a fair hearing? These are questions with complex answers, as you just pointed out, and the rules are still being negotiated I thought that was uh, a pretty good way to, to end this and hopefully get people interested in, in uh, you know, looking at this book and picking it up and reading it because I think it has a lot to offer about something that affects all of us in our society, men and women. Thank you so much, David. That's Yeah, I think that perfectly sums up what I was trying to do with it. Well, thank you for uh, coming on the show today. It's great. Uh, we appreciate you taking the time to do so, even though you're not feeling that well. <laughs> under the I, I managed not to cough my way through the whole thing. So thank you so much <laughs> for having me. It's been a pleasure. And uh, once again, uh, Robin Doolittle, her book is called Had It Coming? What's Fair in the Age of Hashtag Me Too? And uh, she is shortlisted for the uh, RBC uh, Taylor Awards coming up in March. Uh, so be sure to check that out. There's a bunch of other books we're looking at uh, also having on in on the show. But congratulations to you once again. All the best in the future. Thank you. All right. That's uh, our session with Robin. Don't go away. We'll be right back here on Moment of Truth right after this. You're listening to Element FM in Ottawa and Toronto. Today, of course, in the United States is the Iowa caucuses that get underway. And although this is not a Canadian story, per se, or even our electoral process, uh, it is of interest because of how the Iowa caucuses impact uh, the forthcoming American election and uh, later on in the year. And also how the, the caucuses go about their business. Which brings me now to my guest, who happens to be the one and only Caroline O'Neill from our Ottawa station, our sister station in Ottawa at 95.7. She's the morning news person and also our eyes and ears 
in Ottawa at Parliament Hill. Caroline, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much, David. That was quite the introduction, I have to say. <laughs> well, thanks. Hey, you know, um, you know, you brought up this idea about the Iroquois Caucus and, and maybe doing something on Moment of Truth for it, uh, specifically because it is happening today. And and it is of interest. You know, it's it's one of those stories that maybe a lot of people hear about as they're they're running around and doing stuff, and they know it's happening, but they don't know much about it. Um, you know, especially in terms of why are we talking about this? It's it's not really the election, and and what makes it so important, right? And and exactly. um, and and it, and it goes further than that because it's sort of a, an eye into how uh, how this might impact the forthcoming uh, election, especially as we know it's uh, it, it, it you know you're, you although these the Iroquois causes have both the Democrats and the Republicans uh, Republicans going uh, and doing these, uh, we're focusing more on the on the uh, Democrats because that's where the interest is lying because they're trying to p- pick a leader that can go up against Trump in the election. Exactly. And you're so right, David. I think for a lot of people who are kind of busy and going about their day right now, come November, if they have questions about how the system works, right? What's an electoral college? Why was this candidate chosen? It really is the processes that we're about to see start, with, the, especially with the Iowa caucus, that kind of explain how that system works. But at times, it can be a very convoluted system. Yeah, so that's. Uh, I thought this was a great idea, and I thought you know maybe maybe we can start giving people a little bit of background in terms of why they're important and what they do and how they how they do have uh, a role to play in the forthcoming election. So why don't we start there? Are you able to share some of that background about about the Iroquois caucuses for us? Yeah, for sure. I so mean Iowa. All... Yeah, correct. I have to correct. Oh. You. I said Iroquois. <laughs> I've done that a couple that's of okay. times. But that's you know what? That, that's it. you know what this is interesting about because of the way this this system goes about doing things. It does remind me of the Assembly of First Nations and how their how their elections happen every four years and what happens with candidates crossing the floor and that kind of things during the process. But we can get into that a little bit more. So this this is the Iowa caucuses. So <laughs> correct myself for sure. Well, so first of all, the Iowa caucuses really kind of kicks off like official election season, right? We have had debate after debate. We have eventually seen the group of Democratic candidates start to kind of call. But now we're seeing that things are getting serious here. Now, the reason why people watch the Iowa caucuses especially is because typically the person who comes out of the Iowa caucus on top will become the Democratic nominee. And it's looking like a pretty close race today, especially between Sanders and Biden, but as well as um, Warren and Buttigieg. So it'll be interesting to see what happens, um, because there are so many different people compared to last time around when it did just come down to Sanders and Clinton. Yeah, so as you said, it's it's looking really, really tight uh, uh, between uh, mm-hmm. Biden and, and Sanders, as you mentioned. Um, but as you said, there's these there are these other contenders now. As the day rolls on, uh, and yeah. th- they've been candidate, you know, they've been they've been out there uh, uh, trying to win over people. But but part of the the process of of at the Iowa caucuses is that that these these people that the people that are looking to their leaders are trying to pick a leader have the chance to mill around on the floors. They get a chance to talk amongst themselves about why I'm supporting this person and, and why you should be uh, supporting this person. And likewise, those other uh, supporters get to do the same against their candidate. And, and it's kind exactly. of what makes this really interesting as the day rolls on. For sure. And, you know, David, you mentioned how it reminds you of the AFN. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's where this comes in, right? Because 
people aren't just writing on a ballot in their little closed boxes and walking away. They have to make the case to each other. And I think this will be so interesting this year because there are still so many candidates. And I think that for people who are passionate about certain things, they will be desperately making that case. So I think you're going to see some Sanders supporters really saying, you know, we missed our opportunity four years ago. We need to do it again. You're going to see some Biden supporters saying, we saw him in the Obama White House. We know he can handle this. And I think you're going to see some Warren supporters as well saying, this is a Democratic candidate. We can make history with her. We've seen her face off against Donald Trump. And people are going to have to find a way to listen to each other and see who it is that they think should be representing the Democrats. And I think with such a large field of people, it's going to be interesting to see how these conversations go. Because again, at the end of the day, it's in the Democrats' best interest to have the strongest candidate possible, but it's also in their best interest to make sure that this is someone everyone can get behind. And I think that's really what happened in 2016. Not everybody was able to get behind Hillary Clinton, so she didn't become the president. Yeah. Um, now, of course, there's some, you just mentioned a whole bunch of interesting things about, about that. And, and I think one of the, the major concerns I would, I would think that people are going to have is is picking someone that is going to be stand up, st- be able to stand up to Trump. He's he pulls punches and he doesn't hold back when he pulls when he when he, he doesn't pull punches. He hits you full full, full on, and uh, and he, you need somebody that's going to be able to stand up to that and be able to to not only take it but be able to dish it back I- I- as strongly as he does. Hmm. I no, you're totally right with that, and it's it's tough because all of these candidates come from very different experience, different levels in their career, and different parts of the country, right? And so some of them have faith that they could stand up to Donald Trump, but have maybe never done that, whereas other people have been active in this field for a while. So somebody like Elizabeth Warren has been standing up to different people in Senate who Trump has passed along for a long time. Sanders has done the same thing. Now, Pete Buttigieg says he'll do that, and he has a great record, but as a former mayor of South Bend, he hasn't necessarily been in those same venues. So it really just depends on what people are kind of looking to. The other thing that makes it tough is that Um, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, and Amy Klobuchar are essentially stuck in Washington, D.C., right? Mm -hmm. So somebody like Joe Biden has an excellent opportunity to go out and make a case for himself. He has the name recognition. He can link himself to Obama. Plus, he's there on the ground. The same for Pete Buttigieg, right? I think for Buttigieg especially, this is a huge gift because he is kind of in that awkward position as someone who peaked early on, Mm. but doesn't necessarily have some of the star power as the others. But now he's able to go out and about and really engage with people, whereas Warren Sanders and Klobuchar are trying to make their case while also doing their jobs in Senate. Now, as as the day unfolds, and we are, we're already hearing about about stuff. You you, you kind of mentioned about uh, Sanders and, and Biden and, and that close race uh, that that we're seeing unfold. Uh, stories we're going to be hearing about all day today, uh, you know, the, and into the evening about how how this uh, how this is going to unfold, and 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 then we're going to start hearing some of the results. They start around eight o'clock. We might hear some results around eight thirty in the evening. Um, but once things start happening, um, yes. as you say, now what's going to happen is after we get the results, you know, of the first round, it, that's where kind of things can start either start getting messy or, or confusing, uh, because someone might, might start out looking really good, but if you have one or two other candidates that are, that are not doing as well and they decide then to throw their support behind one of the other candidates, that can completely change the next, the next round. Exactly. And not only that, David, but this year the Iowa caucuses are operating under new rules. 
So they're actually going to be um, giving out three results by the end of the day, mm. which means that previously, if there was a big crowd, this would be the perfect time for some people to take a step back, right? So somebody like Amy Klobuchar, mm. kind of on the cusp behind everybody, if she doesn't do well tonight, that would be a time for her team to kind of think about what do we want here? Do we want to continue this all the way to the end? Or do we get behind someone and prove that the Democrats are a strong contingent and we support each other? But if there's one result where she wins, she could absolutely make the case that she should stay in, right? Mm. So the way that they're going to show these results are the voters will first write who they align with at the start of the night. Then for those people whose candidate doesn't make that 15% threshold, they can switch over. And so when you were talking about how this one is really where people are moving around the room and chatting with each other, if they don't make it, that's where they're going to be thinking about the different people they interacted with and who they think would be the next best choice. And then finally, they'll look at the number that each state um, of each state delegate that each candidate gets. So those are the three results. This has confused a lot of the um, media outlets in the states. They're not sure if they should be running all of these results. They're not sure how it will impact things. But I think, again, for people who do truly believe that they could pick up momentum between now and November, which is quite a long time, they could make the case to stay. Uh, so... <laughs> As we as we look at these, and, and like you said, you you pointed out some great some great things about uh, you know some of the some of these leaders like uh, Biden and and, uh, and and Sanders and and um, and Warren. Um, you know uh, they've all, and I guess the other thing that's happened in, over the last week, of course, is that uh, you know Sanders has has made some claims that well, since he started getting into things. Uh, that the Republicans have started have, have started to take notice of the Democratic, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, electoral policy uh, program. What's going on? And um, and and I guess to some degree or or not, I heard that Trump was down in in Iowa last week. Uh, you know, maybe campaigning a little bit or trying to to get some some attention, uh, as well as he had a big ad on the Super Bowl. No, and you're right. And I mean, Trump would be keeping an eye on this because. Well, Iowa, it's a funny, Iowa is a funny place because Iowa will likely predict who will become the nominee, but Iowa itself is quite unpredictable when it comes to who it is that they choose to elect. And I think especially in light of the 2016 federal election, Iowa is interesting to watch because it really is that middle America area. And it, but the other thing where people have a hard time with it, so on the one hand, it kind of helps you look at how 2016 panned out the way it did. But on the other hand, in terms of the Democratic side of it, it does get a lot of flack because it really isn't a diverse place to start all of this off. Mm. I believe that the Iowa Black Congressional Caucus has no more than five members because that's just the, la- the layout of the land. Mm. Uh, so you mentioned uh, 2016, but can we go back a little bit, if you don't mind? And uh, you, you've you've talked uh, a little bit about the the importance of it over over time, right? Over the, over mm-hmm. a large picture, a large a t- uh, picture of time. Uh, why have the Iowa caucuses? Here I go again. Um, it, 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 you know, become so important as a focal area for this to to galvanize attention. You know, it's funny because Iowa is actually, it's very polarizing. It doesn't operate as a primary. Like I said, it isn't that diverse. 
Um, it's the one that kicks things off. And there are many, many people who would argue that Iowa should not get to go first and that there should not be an Iowa caucus at all. Mm. Part of that is why it does have the recognition that it has. Now, on the flip side, there are many Iowa voters themselves who say that they do believe it should stay there. They say that part of the problem with the Democrat Party is that it's often too centralized to places like New York City and Los Angeles. And then when they're not hearing from middle America, they often get surprised. Now, of course, the other thing that's worth noting is there are other primaries as well. Just because someone doesn't do well in Iowa tonight, there's still New Hampshire, there's still Nevada, there's still South Carolina. And again, those are all varied districts. But Iowa itself is definitely a really interesting place. Uh, so um, what, can we, what can we share um, in, in regard to the, we talked about the process, we talked about what, what's going on here, absolutely, yeah. in terms of picking a leader. Mm-hmm. But what are the concerns for the Democratic Party themselves? Because I've heard this mentioned by a couple of, of those in the running. You know, let's remember we're all on the same side and we have to, we have to come up with something that we can stand behind, uh, you know, unitedly because we're, we're all going after the same goal and that is to, to uh, you know, uh, remove Trump. Exactly. And, you know, that is really something that came out of 2016, David. And actually, those changes that we, I spoke about, those three different results, that is a direct result of the 2016 election. And that's been mandated by the DNC as part of these changes moving forward. One of the number one complaints that people have about the caucus system is that it isn't transparent and that people aren't necessarily getting credit for all of the votes they receive. So somebody like Pete Buttigieg, if he doesn't get enough results, or Klobuchar, they might not be able to get access to that. And for people who did back them, they may not be able to get access to that information. So that's the change that we're seeing. Now, the thing with the Democrats and with the Democratic base that I think this is where things get tricky is that Democrats operate on a very different threshold when they pick a when they pick a candidate. It seems like they apply a purity test that can be very hard for any leader to reach, whereas typically with the Republican Party, they are they have an easier time backing a candidate. What I think can maybe turn out a little ironically for a Democratic voter is that in applying such a high standard of a purity test to their leader, they sometimes lose on a progressive outcome, right? So then you see somebody like Brett Kavanaugh become a Supreme Court justice because your your candidate didn't become the leader, because not everybody felt that they could support them. Mm. That is something that they could be in very dangerous territory again, right? Especially when you kind of see that Sanders division. Sanders himself is not a Democrat. He's an independent, which means there are parts of him that will always conflict with the Democratic Party. Mm. And you will see that tension. If he does become the nominee, the presidential nominee, people will have to back him right away. And then the flip side to that too, right, is if it becomes Joe Biden or somebody else, Sanders is a very powerful voice. If he is able to back someone right away and say, I support them, his followers will likely take note. Uh, Right. Now, I did hear uh, something, I believe that, uh, and I'm I'm sorry, I I don't have the note in front of me. It it, it was something about a union that just flipped. Uh, I believe it was... Uh, behind Biden, it could be the opposite. I'm not sure, uh, but it, they just uh, they just flipped and they've supported one uh, Saunders or Biden. Do you know the story of the, the just? Yeah, broke? so it was it was a Sanders flip actually. Okay. Yeah, that happened over the weekend. Yeah, and so for a lot of people. Um you know, I heard people chatting over the weekend, David, who said that they ne- they don't believe Sanders could become president, but now they're curious. Mm. Um, a lot of people, I think, have a hard time with the socialism aspect that comes with Sanders, but 
if he comes out on top tonight, that is a massive victory. And I think a lot of people will have to start looking critically at who they want, what they want their outcome to be, right? Iowa is a small paint stroke on the big picture, and it's important for voters if they want to unseat Trump in November, they have to think about what their big picture is, right? So is it the purity standard or is it getting behind somebody who we think can do this? Mm. You know, in, in some of the things you were just talking about there between looking at the at the, uh, the, the, the forerunners and trying to decide on, on what to do in this purity uh, thing that you were talking about, uh, you know, mm-hmm. I've just been looking at some of the material that, that Biden has been, uh, you know, both, well, all these these have been, been putting out. But it's interesting, you know, some of the things that he's he's uh, he's saying is is things like, does it matter if a president lies? Does it matter if a president has no moral compass? Does it matter if a president <laughs> believes they're above the law? Does it matter, you know, all of, is he mean, is he cruel, spiteful? You know, does the character of a president matter? All of these uh, questions you know that he's that he's throwing out there uh, about about that, and then you have, as you say, Sanders, which uh, you know he he's saying they've got a, a strong grassroots mov- movement, and and how uh, a lot of young people are looking to him. And you know what? If you need to build a party, you do need to build it with young people. And I think that there is a strong contingent of young people who have made it clear that the Republican Party and the Democrat Party are not the places for them, right? It's an interesting time to see if a third party would ever be something that could inspire people. With Sanders himself, right, he is not part of the Democratic Party, but he has been instrumental in challenging the party, especially over the past four years. Now, with Biden, that's a really solid political strategy his way, right, because he's really asking questions that you could say you are seeing in the current president. As the most high-profile candidate, Biden comes with the most baggage, right? Mm. For every endorsement he gets, for every time that he can mention Obama, for every time he can mention he was vice president, there are other things you can mention that do undermine his credibility. Mm. For instance, the impeachment trial does center around Joe Biden and his son, right? Mm. Some people might mention Anita Hill and how that was handled, especially in the light of Christine Blasey Ford. So what he's kind of doing, right, is saying, like, maybe I'm not perfect and certainly... There are things in the past that I've done that could have been better, but X, Y, and Z, you will not see from me. It, it, in some way, it surprises me because we should all know by now that nobody's perfect. Um, exactly. But anyway, be that as it may, uh, we'll see how things unfold. You're listening to Moment of Truth on Element FM. I'm your host, David Moses. And uh, on the line from Ottawa is our very own Caroline O'Neill. She's our morning news person and our eyes and ears on Parliament Hill. And we were talking about the, uh, the Iowa caucus uh, as it unfolds and, and why it's important for Canadians to maybe take some interest, at least, in understanding what's going on down there and why this is important to Americans, as we'll, we'll be hearing more and more about this throughout the day uh, as it unfolds, and also um, getting the results tonight and what that means leading up to the election later on in, uh, in the year. One of the things, actually, that I think is worth mentioning is that there were some weekend polls that CNN and the Des Moines Register were supposed to release, but they didn't because there's actually concern about corruption with those polls. So some survey, Mm. um, some people who took the survey said that Pete Buttigieg's name was left off the poll call. People haven't been able to confirm if that's the case, so they actually haven't released those numbers heading into it, which I mean, in the war rooms of all of the different candidates, that must be incredibly stressful not having that kind of knowledge moving forward. You know, you just brought up something, and I just it just popped into my head as you said that, as the word corruption came out of your mouth, and mm-hmm. it brings into question what does the Democratic Party, uh, you know, if they are thinking of this, 
uh, about uh, a, a leader that potentially, uh, you know, went to great lengths um, in the last election to go even outside of his own country to look for, uh, you know, uh, shaping things to his advantage. You know, I think there is a really interesting parallel going on in the States. You have the Iowa caucuses today, which for some people do kind of represent a start of this democratic cycle that we're about to jump into. And then you have the impeachment happening, Mm -hmm. right? Um, But it's a little more nuanced than that because you have the impeachment happening, sure, but the number one Democratic contender is pretty wrapped into it whether or not he wants to be, right? Mm. And then you have the process itself. This is the first caucus operating under different rules that are meant to be more transparent. For every allegation of corruption that's been levied towards Donald Trump, if people will remember in 2016, there were plenty of allegations of corruption going towards the Democratic Party. Mm. So I think it'll be really interesting to see what happens. Now, again, that's a lot easier, I think, to kind of make a case for when there are two people, and especially to very different people, as we saw with Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders. Now that there are so many, it will look different. But I definitely think that for the Democratic voters who didn't come out last time or were frustrated last time, I think that they are they're looking very critically at the proceedings today. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, Caroline, we don't have to move on. I was just thinking of the coronavirus. And if you have any anything you can add to that as this story unfolds back here, you know, in in with the the Canadian uh, borders and, and those kind of things and what you're hearing up there. You know what? We can definitely talk about the coronavirus. I think, though, the best way to end the Iowa caucus, I would say, is we do have a few by-elections that are being called provincially here in Ottawa. And I think that voter turnout wasn't what it could have been in our own federal election. And while I love kind of watching the American system unfold, it is so convoluted and complicated and very hard to access. We will have our own elections coming up over the past few years. It is not that hard to check a name off a ballot. But heading over to coronavirus, there... There's a lot going on, and especially for you in Toronto, David, it must be, I think that it must be really tough for the public officials to make sure that people are keeping calm and following the procedures, because I think staying calm is what will get us through this and what will, especially in Canada, prevent any more further infection. Well, I think you're right. Staying calm is the only action that that, it, that would, uh, you know, make sense, uh, because um, it seems the authorities and everyone, uh, health agencies, everyone is doing what they can. Um, you know, I, I think this uh, probably could have gotten out of hand uh, uh, in a different way. So it's 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 nice to see things happening the way they are. As we know, we have these three or four cases now. Uh, the one person that was uh, infected and was in hospital uh, has been released now and is uh, is at home uh, under uh, recovery. Seems to be doing well, uh, both he and his wife. Um, but there's mm-hmm. all kinds of questions that remain about this virus. You know, it's moving so fast. There's still a lot to figure out. One of the things that we do know is that it does take, it can take about two weeks for the symptoms to show up. Mm. That's why we were having some of these problems. Um, But to your point about what was happening in Toronto and keeping calm, in Ottawa, we had a very different situation. There was someone who was tested and it turned out that it wasn't the case. So I think it's great that we have these systems in place that somebody went forward and submitted to testing just to be on the safe side. But I think, again, right, had we given into panic, that could have been a lot worse when in reality there was nothing to panic about. And I think that shows our healthcare system working as it should. Now, there are people who are rightfully panicking, and that would be the family members of 325 Canadians who are currently asking for help to leave China. And it seems like right now the government and China are having a hard time figuring out how to make this happen. 
Well, you know, I, I think that um, you're right. Uh, there, I understand there's a there's a plane that is either on its way or is there now waiting for uh, uh, for for its uh, marching orders to go and being able to to go pick up these these Canadians, which would they would then come back and I understand spend two weeks at uh, Camp uh, Borden. Uh, or one uh, Trenton. Trenton, thank you. Uh, yeah. And uh, for a couple of weeks uh, to stay under observation. Uh, the other thing that, uh, you know, has, has come forward, that uh, we, we want to make sure that we don't start laying blame anywhere for this. It's, uh, you know, it, it's not the appropriate thing or the right thing to do to start looking at uh, one particular group of people and blaming them for, uh, for, for this, this happening. And uh, we've heard some stories about some concerns. We have, and you know what? That, that's a phenomenal point, David. Um, we saw this happen with SARS back in 2002 and 2003. We should not be falling, falling into racist attitudes or patterns regardless, mm-hmm. but it will not help us any either to start turning against each other. Mm-hmm. Justin Trudeau was actually in Toronto for Lunar New Year. He went and ate at a Chinese restaurant over the weekend, and he did say that this is something that Canada cannot be doing. We need to be supporting each other and lifting each other up, supporting our small businesses, and making sure that we are treating each other the way we all deserve to be treated. And I think that is that's really key. This is not, you can't be blaming the blame on a specific group of people this way. Yeah. Uh, Carolyn, nicely said. I can't think of a better way for us to end the show and our section of the show with you. And I appreciate your time, as always, coming on the show. It's great to hear your voice, great to hear your input, and it's always a pleasure to uh, be able to uh, bring you and our, our uh, sister station into Moment of Truth. Thanks so much, David. It was great to be on today. And Caroline O'Neill is our Ottawa eyes and ears up at Parliament Hill. She works at our sister station at 95.7 ELMNT-FM up there. She's also our morning news person. It's always a pleasure to have her on the show. I also want to say nyawa miigwech wanishi and thank you to everyone who helps put Moment of Truth together. They include in Ottawa, Jill Kennedy and Caroline O'Neill. In Toronto, Andrew Johnson, Luca Capone, Kathy Zabokin, Andrew St. Germain. Nyawa miigwech and thanks for listening.